So welcome to all of you uh, to Conversations at the Lab, where, as you know, we talk with executives from both the business and sports world. And today I am delighted to have as my guest Steve Sadoff. And Steve's career accomplishments are way too many to list today. We don't have the time to do that, but I thought I would highlight some because it's really quite a quite a career he has ha- he's had and is having. Um, up to 2013, Steve was the chairman and CEO of Sachs. Um, Sachs was sold in 2014 to Hudson Bay Company. And prior to that, Steve has had what I would call an illustrious and distinguished career in marketing and with consumer brands for over 25 years. Um, he spent 16 years at General Foods, which is now Kraft, and became the executive vice president and general manager of the desserts and also their meals division. He joined Bristol Myers as president of Clairol, leading all the way up eventually to his being president of Bristol Myers Squibb Worldwide Beauty Care and Nutritionals. Today he's a founding partner of JW Levin Management Partners. It's a, a unique management investment firm focusing on retail and consumer companies. So. Um, I could go into much more length about Steve, but um, it gives you a sense of his his quite distinguished career. So um, he's a regular guest on, I think, on many network and cable news pro, uh, shows. Um, he serves on a lot of community and civic boards. Um, he's the chairman of the board of his alma mater, Hamilton College. Um, he has an MBA from Harvard. I know he graduated with distinction. Um, uh, he serves on the board of AmeriCares. He was the former chairman and is still on the board of the National Retail Federation. And he serves on a couple of company boards, Colgate Palmolive, I think he's the lead director, uh, on the board of Aramark and also Park Resorts and Hotels. So, Steve, um, thank you uh, for taking the time, and we really appreciate you uh, spending a few minutes with us today. Happy to. Great. Thanks a lot. So, Steve, um, you're one of the few leaders I know of, maybe the only one, who does not come from a traditional merchandising background when you enter the world of retail, Sachs. What was that transition like, and how did your leadership background serve you so well in a changing, maybe even challenging, and different retail environment as compared to consumer products? You know, it's interesting. Retail is very different from consumer. When I, uh, you know, as you talked about in my bio, uh, I had spent many years at Kraft, uh, about 17 years, and uh, left from there to go to uh, Bristol-Myers, and I ran the Clairol Company. And even though they were different, one was beauty, one was food, they were both consumer goods companies, and, uh, and there were more overlap than differences. When I went to retail, it really was quite different. Uh, I had been, and the way I got there was a little bit roundabout. I had, uh, while I was running the Bristol-Myers companies, uh, Sachs had gone public. It was owned by a private equity firm named InvestCorp, and when they went public, they needed an outside board, and I was one of the outside board members. Uh, They wanted somebody with a consumer background. And I went on the board and over a period of several years became one of the senior directors. And Bristol-Myers, there was a, uh, two things came together. Bristol-Myers 
around the late uh, uh, 90s decided that it wanted to uh, become a pharma-only company, so we were selling off the Clairol company and, the Mead, and we spun Mead Johnson, which was a baby formula company I, that reported to me off as a public company. And Sachs was undergoing some major changes, and they asked me whether I would consider coming from the board of directors into the management of the company and partner with the uh, then the then CEO and chairman in running the company. And I thought, boy, that would be interesting uh, to come into a different environment. I'd gone from food to beauty, and uh, retail sounded like it would be an interesting challenge. Uh, I didn't quite realize how different retail was. Uh, people were wired differently. Uh, the mindset is very different. The pace is different. And my guess is, had I not been sitting on the board uh, and watched and observed it, uh, it would have been almost impossible to make the transition. And that's to your initial question. You only have a handful of people who have made successfully that transition from the consumer world to the uh, to the retail world. And you know, and people were skeptical about what would a guy whose consumer background know about retail and how would they be able to uh, operate in a retail environment that's totally driven by merchants. And I guess the, um, if I had to think about it, because it really was a successful run and I uh, uh, went about 12, 13 years uh, in total, much of it as chairman and CEO of uh, Sachs, uh, I think that it really worked largely because I understood what I brought to the party and what I didn't bring to the party. And I wasn't a merchant. I wasn't a trained retailer. What I did do a pretty good job of, I think, was uh, lead companies, create culture, uh, get people aligned around common shared objectives, and create a culture where people felt that they could win. And retailers tended to not really focus on uh, uh, the leadership culture aspect of uh, the organizations, and I pretty quickly realized that if I was going to do it that way, I needed a partner, somebody who could play the role of the merchant uh, merchant prince or the merchant that uh, could help drive some of the uh, product aspects of it. So I found a, a partner uh, who had been in the company, and the two of us, uh, he became my president, and uh, you know, and it became history. It was highly successful, but. Uh, you know, I, I think that the fact that I knew that I didn't bring the merchandising skill set in some ways uh, played to uh, a strength in terms of how we ran the company. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. I certainly understand that. I, some, sometimes I think you mentioned we often talk about in the world that I coach in and, and talk with frequently is the ability to really understand one's own self, having some sense of self-awareness as a foundation. And, you know, to your point on that, one question that comes up for me would be, where does one's self-awareness fit in for you and how has it impacted your leadership? Because you did mention the fact that you knew that you didn't have that type of merchandising background, but you talked a little bit about some of the things which sort of underscored how you wanted to build the culture and and the team at Sachs. Well, you know, I think if I look back over, and it's now been, I guess, almost 40 years of a career, uh, most the parallels and the consistency is that it's been all about people and people development. And 
whether it's the people who I've worked for who have mentored me or the people that I've mentored, it, it, the relationships uh, with people, even if I go back to Harvard or Hamilton and uh, in school, whether it was on a college or high school, uh, I played tennis, uh, not nearly as well as Tom here because he regularly beat me but uh, when we played. But uh, uh, it, it's about the uh, relationships that you develop over time. And part of relationship building is understanding how you, the role you play on a team, the role you play as a leader of a team, and how you complement and mesh with other people. And one of the skills, I think, that differentiated me over time was the ability to be what you call self-aware of how you fit into the whole, whether it's uh, filling in a gap that a team has or that the team needs a leader to step up. Uh, so I was pretty much aware from a very early stage going back through high school in terms of uh, how I could play as a member or leader of a team and what was working, what wasn't wasn't working. And I was, you know, I was always pretty good at understanding the business aspect, the data, the, you know, what was going on and whatever uh, we were involved with. But the people aspect, I think, I nurtured from the earliest stages, and that's to me what uh, allowed me to become more self-aware. Yeah, oh, that's great. That's great. You know, um, within the world of college athletics, we oftentimes talk about how does one deal with success, and also, how does one deal with failure? And failure is not something we are sort of taught to know how to deal with. We're not educated about it, but it's something that we encounter. And, um, and oftentimes, we talk about resiliency and recovery. How do, you, how do you get back on your feet? How do you view failure as a leader? Well... Anyway, the first thing I always, uh, uh, there are two aspects of it that I think about. One is that uh, if you don't make attempts, you're never going to, uh, you know, and you're, you're never going to hit. If in baseball you hit 350, you're probably going to lead the majors in uh, batting. So uh, uh, nobody hits 100%. And you can't do that in business either. And uh, one of the companies I took over, uh, Clairol, uh, this was back in 1991, I guess, uh, was an old name that was doing, uh, uh, had been highly successful, and then all of a sudden it was losing, and it was losing because it was afraid to take risks. And people were of a mindset that they were better off keeping their head low because if they uh, raised their head and it was unsuccessful, they get shot. So it became much better and easier to uh, not try new things. And the problem is if you don't try things or take any risks, you're never going to win. And so you've got to create, it goes back to culture, you've got to create an environment or culture where people feel that there's a willingness to try things, that people are going to uh, uh, not be shot if they uh, fail, and that it becomes a learning environment where you learn from your experiences. Now, if you constantly lose and you constantly fail, then maybe you're not the right person to be doing something. But... What you find is if you create an environment, a learning environment where people uh, are willing to try things, then you occasionally get that single, double, and ultimately a home run. I remember when we had Clairol using that example, uh, we had a couple of uh, tried a few things, and some worked, some didn't, and then all of a sudden we launched a product called Herbal Essence Shampoo, 
which was an old name and uh, became a home run and became almost a billion dollar business. So you've got, but that never would have happened had we not created the environment where uh, people could try things and uh, and fail. And I found that in every company uh, that I've worked with, that if you don't try. Uh, to uh, allow that environment for experimentation, for trying new things, that you don't uh, get any kind of breakthrough. I would also say that this, uh, and I've watched this uh, failure. I've got, you know, take your. We're talking about uh, linkages between athletics and business. As you said, I, I chair the board of a small college, uh, and you know, we had an experience w- there where we weren't winning uh, our winning win-loss percentage within our uh, division, it was Division Three NESCAC, was terrible. Uh, and we took a look at it and said, what were some of the causes of this? And uh, you found, started doing our own root cause analysis, and you found that a lot of it had to do with uh, uh, communication, it had to do with shared objectives. Uh, so sometimes it's uh, doing your own self-analysis as to why things are or aren't working. Uh, can also have an impact uh, beyond just creating the culture of experimentation. Well said, Steve. I, I, I get that completely. We we oftentimes chat about this whole world of you really have to sort of sometimes step back and reflect, and I always say to people that um, leaders put themselves in a position to have choices, and when we don't curl up in a ball and get in the corner and know that we can't be afraid to get out there and try, um, it's something that is a, a culture and a, um, a vision that leaders have to have to create that sense of, I wouldn't say safety, but a sense of um, ideas are appreciated and we all learn from our mistakes. So um, I, I completely get that. You know, you, we've talked a little bit today about this whole topic of culture. And, you know, one of the things I, I just, uh, talk a little bit with my organizations, and I'll go do some public speaking on it, but uh, this issue of, what are the role of leaders? What is the role of the leader? And I think that leaders do two things. Uh, and it's funny, when I was running SACS, I probably spent 20% of my time with Wall Street, and invariably they would ask me, let's talk about the current quarter, or let's talk about the results. And sometimes, you know, most of the time they would talk to you and ask you about, well, what's your strategy for the next five years, or whatever it might be. And almost never, uh, I can probably count on one hand over the years, uh, did they really ever ask you about culture? And what kind of a culture do you have? And I always believed that the role of the leader, think about a baseball diamond, uh, the role of the leader at the top, at second base, so to speak, is to focus on two things. One would be strategy and alignment of strategy, and the other is creating the culture. So think about that as first and third base. And home plate becomes the results. And if you get first and third base, strategy and uh, culture, right, then you get the results. It's not the results come first. So if a Wall Street analyst is asking you for the results, the result is the byproduct of what you do. And it's the strategy and the uh, uh, culture leadership that drive it. And I think that what differentiates good leaders from uh, other leaders is that everybody talks strategy. Everybody focuses on uh, you know, a strategic plan or uh, pretty, you know, whether they have a good one or not is a separate question. But the culture aspect of this uh, and how do, you derive, how do you define culture, how do you drive culture, how do you uh, uh, create it uh, is a very difficult one. 
and it's hard to, and it's probably one of the hardest things to change. It's easy, easy to say, let's change our strategy from A to B. Much harder to uh, change an organization's culture. Well, I, I think, uh, well said, I, I, I love your analogy about, you know, first and third base being the ingredients to drive the result, and those are what really come first. It's, you've got to work from the inside out to get the results you want. So, and, and many organizations and many institutions, certainly higher education institutions, often talk about sort of the ability to have a culture that promotes learning, um, both success and failure, and, and how do we deal with it. So I, I completely I completely get that. Um, your question I was thinking about, Steve, was, um, as you well know better than anybody, being a, a champion of consumer brands, and I've led them over the years, is, you know, the way we communicate today has completely changed. I don't have to, to go through all of the reasons why, but the world has changed. Access to information, the multitude of channels we can communicate by, our ability to get information faster and quicker. Um, when you think about business in general today, if you were talking to a group of student athletes at the collegiate level, what attributes, or maybe even what I would say are competencies, are important for success today after college? Well, I think you, you characterize the world pretty well. We're in a period of rapid change. We're in the early stages of it. Almost every uh, category or business that you can think of is being disintermediated in some way. You can think about it and you know, you know the reasons, whether it's social media, whether it's different business models, uh, and new ones are popping up all the time. One of the interesting things is that my generation – uh, is very, very slow relative to adapting and understanding how fast the pace of change is. So that my kids are so much more savvy in uh, the technology changes and the implications than I am. So, and you know, typical, if I call my daughter, uh, uh, she'll never answer the phone, but if I text her, uh, I'll get an immediate response. That's a behavior that, uh, you know, is so different than what we grew up in. So as I think about the, uh, uh, even within the companies that I've been involved with, I've done things like reverse mentoring as opposed to us mentoring the junior people. We've had the junior people mentoring us as it relates to things like technology and, uh, and change. So the, uh, uh, the implication of it is that there's so much opportunity for the student athletes or for any uh, people coming into business uh, today, and the new business models are going to be different than the old ones. Now, if I was a student athlete thinking about this, uh, what hasn't changed is the need for leadership. So the kinds of things that we were talking about earlier uh, uh, in terms of motivating, leading, creating culture, doesn't matter to me whether it's a disintermediated model, new model, old model, that's going to be the same, and I've always found that great student athletes, especially ones that are able to lead a team uh, or be a good partner on a team, those skill sets are just as important to, uh, in the future state as they were in the past. And I found some of my best uh, team players uh, were ones who grew up understanding how to work as a member of a team 
uh, on a sports team, on a, uh, uh, it could be a civic team, it could be others, but student athletes are great examples of uh, people who are able to understand how to work within an organization because that's what they do. And so I'm kind of encouraged, I would encourage the student athletes uh, that we're talking to to think about those skills that they've developed as team members and how they become applicable in the new environment and then recognize that all the social media skills and things that they're already uh, facile with are going to play to their strength in the new environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, love your thought about the reverse mentoring where, you know, let's, let's switch roles for a moment. Let's, let's, let's take the young person and sort of be my mentor so I can sort of yep. get up to speed. So I, I get that. You know, we're... We've, we've almost been on the phone a half hour time goes quickly but one thing I want to come back to which I think is sort of a centerpiece which I really enjoy hearing your thoughts on is this whole area of one culture how do we define it if, if you were chatting with a bunch of administrative leaders at least in the higher education world in this instance we have many athletic directors and people who sort of lead teams of people where does one get started on culture creation? What are one or two things, Steve, that you think might be well, interesting for them to think about? Well, first of all, I'd start by saying every organization has an existing culture. Unless you're starting from day one and you're the number one first employee where you're starting from scratch, you're usually in an organization that's existing, that's a college or it's a, somewhere that's been around for a long time and has a culture. And I think the first thing I would do would be to, do, uh, to figure out an audit, in a sense, of what do we really think the culture of the organization is today. And there's all kinds of survey mechanisms, uh, whether it's uh, a written survey or one-on-one -on -one interviews or uh, that people can do to do a hard-nosed assessment of where are we today. How do people perceive us internally, externally, uh, uh, low levels of the organization, higher level people have been around a long time. So I'd start there with a very fact-based um, look-see at how do people view what our culture is like today. Is it innovative? Is it bureaucratic? Is it fast-moving? Is it slow? Uh, and those are questions that you can get at. And then you ask, uh, have to ask yourself, is that what I want it to be if I'm the leader? And where do I want to move it to? What are the things that I want to evolve? There are some elements you're going to say, I love that element and I want to keep it. There are others that you might say, boy, I, I didn't realize it was that bad. We need, we, people are fearful of speaking up. We better try and figure out how we change that. So you, you want to identify what are the things you want to keep, what are the things you want to evolve, what are the ones that you want to get rid of. But all that's uh, easily done and just by asking questions uh, and you know, and creating the environment where people feel free to talk about that stuff. Yeah. So that's great. You know, sometimes I refer to that as sort of building a culture of psychological safety. It's like, speak up. Let's 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 trust each other so that we can have a sharing of ideas and, and learn, as you said, from fact-based you know findings. Which I think and that's part of the culture too. Even asking the questions becomes part of the culture. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Steve, this has been great. I, I, I really thank you uh, for your time. We could speak to you for much longer, but everybody's busy. And um, 
really appreciate your thoughts on, and I know our people are look forward to sort of hearing more and maybe sometime in the future when we have some interesting things that have happened, some of the work that I'm doing, love to get you back on. So uh, thank you. For your sure. Time. Really appreciate it. It's been, it's been great, and um, we will talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks. Take care. See you. Bye-bye.